0: episode number seven. Today we continue our discussion about crime prevention in rental housing and the Crime-Free Multi-Housing Program, part two, with our special guest, the man who created it, Tim Zering.
1: This is the Crime School Radio Show where industry experts discuss the business of fighting crime and prevention strategies for making places safe.
0: Leading today's discussion is security expert Chris McGoey. Welcome to Crime School. Today's episode is part two of of the continuing discussion about the Crime-Free Multi-Housing Program. If you haven't yet listened to Part 1, I encourage you to do that now. Everything in Part 1 lays the foundation and is a basis for understanding everything we talk about today. I hope you're in a good place, where you can relax and focus on the content. If not, I hope this episode helps pass the time to your destination. In today's episode... Internationally known crime prevention expert Tim Zering will continue to tell us about his journey developing the Crime-Free Multi-Housing Program. Today we will focus on Phase 2 and Phase 3 certifications, how those phases came to be, what they mean to the program, and how they help the outcome. We will also talk about the genesis of the Crime-Free Association, now known as the International Crime-Free Association. Tim will tell us about the development of the Train the Trainer program for law enforcement to help spread the word and implement this program across North America. We will talk about some of the legal aspects, some of the hurdles and development of the Crime-Free Lease Addendum that allows property managers uh, more leverage in the execution of their goal to make places safe. So sit back, enjoy, enjoy. This is part two of the Crime-Free Multi-Housing Program with our guest, Tim Ziering. Now, another component of the Crime-Free Program you labeled as Phase 2, and we already started chatting about that a little bit, but that's really the physical part. The actual units themselves, the common areas. uh, Tell us how you came up with the criteria and the components of Phase 2, and how do you go about getting that message across or getting that? phase completed.
1: One of the things that I needed was something that I could tell the tenants to show that the property management was genuinely concerned about their safety. Um, As I said, this program had a tendency to appear as the police and the landlords teaming up against the tenants. I had to show that the police department really was neutral and that we were pressuring the landlords to do something good for the tenants. And physical security of the units was certainly one of the greatest needs. Uh, you've been to many apartment communities all over the country where health and safety issues, um, are so bad that, you know, there's, there's death, there's, there's injuries, there's all kinds of fear of crime, and there's rampant crime going on, and people just feel that the landlord is a slumlord and they don't care. So the way for the landlord to show that they really did care was improving the lighting, improving the shrubbery, but then also securing the individual units, the doors, the windows, the sliding glass doors, and, you know, a plethora of other things if you want to get into, we can, but I found that other than, you know, the external property uh, level improvements. A property manager could upgrade the security of a tenant's unit for less than $5 per unit. For $5 per unit, they could show the resident, we really are genuinely concerned about your safety and we're taking steps to ensure your safety and at the same time reduce their civil liability.
0: And it's the easiest aspect because a unit is no more than a box. Yes. It has a door or two and some windows into the box. So if you can reasonably secure that with solid core doors, I'll let you explain what the components are that you recommend. If you can secure that in a reasonable fashion, then a lot of the violent crime that occurs won't occur.
1: Absolutely. In fact, one of the things that I looked at, door kicks. I'm sure you're familiar uh, in all of the civil litigation work you've done with the number of door kicks all across the country and you know the relative ease. Teenagers, young teenage boys can kick in a front door because when you look at the metal strike plate in the door frame it looks like it's fairly secure but the screws that affix that strike plate to the door frame are actually very short screws. In most doors there's a 2x4 just a couple inches or even less than an inch in some cases beyond that strike plate, and just simply removing those tiny screws and putting in three-inch long screws will make that door frame so much more secure. I've got videotapes of a real SWAT team, not actors, a real SWAT team trying to kick down a door that has the long screws in it, and they were unable to do so. In fact, they brought out a 60-pound ram, a battering ram like the SWAT team would use, and it took them... A long time to knock down the door and when the door eventually broke it wasn't the strike plate that gave way. it was the edge of the door that split and the door itself came apart after being hit repeatedly with a 60-pound ram so when, when I'm looking at the fact that people are victims of rape home invasion you know various types of crimes because somebody kicked in the door I'm telling property managers for the cost of four three-inch screws literally pennies you can prevent somebody from being raped or robbed or even murdered in their apartment. There's just no reason not to do it.
0: So give me the list. What what do you recommend to be certified in Phase 2 of the Crime-Free Multi-Housing Program? Generally, what is the criteria that must be met?
1: Most of the things are things that really should go without being mentioned. For example, a deadbolt on the door. I just can't imagine there's anybody out there that would consider themselves to be conscientious if they don't have a deadbolt on every exterior door of the apartment. And, and that's really one of the most expensive upgrades and one of the biggest objections to joining the crime-free program if somebody does not provide deadbolts. I, just, I can't see how they think they're conscientious without one. But looking at the front door, in addition to the deadbolt and the long screws in the strike plate of the door frame, We also want an eye viewer in the door, a peephole. It's important that a person can look out to see who's at their door without the person behind the door or in front of the door seeing who's behind the door. Uh, It gives a little bit of anonymity. If a person doesn't want to open the door, they don't have to. And it doesn't give a clue to the person on the outside of the door who's inside the unit. Uh, Then after the doors, uh, we look at the windows, the sliding glass windows, they may slide up, they may slide sideways, but there are very simple techniques, uh, just pennies per window to prevent the window from opening more than four inches or in some cases opening at all. We show them strategies where they can have the windows secured in the completely closed position and secure the windows where they're open only four inches. Four inches would be the distance of the bars in a swimming pool fence. You know, children can't squeeze between that. Uh, Then we look at the sliding glass door, which is basically a sliding window. It's just a much larger scale. And the principle is the same as a sliding window. We want to secure the door where it does not open at all or, where they can open it four inches and secure it so it can't be opened or removed even when it's in that open position. So really, as far as the apartment goes, we look at the doors and the windows. And then beyond that, we just are concerned about the general lighting of the property and the landscaping on the property And that's probably the hardest part to sell, but I tell them, if your residents don't feel safe walking on your property, one, you're probably not going to get good residents because they're going to look at the property and say, this is way too dark. I don't feel safe. Forget it. We're not moving here. Whereas a person who's inclined to sell drugs or be involved in gang activity, they would rather like the fact that it's very dark. So you pick your problems by the way you prepare your property
0: and and the trainers all know of course when they're talking to people about securing their doors or their windows that they're they're aware of the fire codes and we make sure we don't violate any fire regulations we make sure that there's lights outside the entry door probably most importantly the officers are also aware of uh, things like fire extinguishers and other uh, safety issues aren't they
1: sure In fact, you're a walking encyclopedia on on crime. You could probably spout off the top of your head the likelihood of having a burglary versus the likelihood of having a home fire, and I, I would try to impress upon the fire department that our goal is to provide security for the residents because we understand the chances of there being a burglary or a home invasion or whatever is much higher than the possibility that they may have a fire in their apartment and have trouble getting out. But of course, the the fire department, they don't care. Their number one thing is you got to be able to get out very quickly. So the idea of double cylinder deadbolts or complicated locks or bars on windows, these are things they frown down on and it's going to just flat be prohibited. So the trainers, we, we, all of the trainers have to work around the idea that the fire department is going to trump us and anytime you compromise security, For fire safety, it does create a weakness. And in the desert, we have another problem, and that is um, the electric company, our utility. They will tell people, if you want to reduce your electric bill, grow those shrubs really tall and really thick over your windows. If you can cover your windows with shrubbery, it'll reduce your cooling bill. Well, of course, we're telling them, trim those shrubs down so we can see if there's a peeping Tom or a burglar there. So we're not only conflicting with the fire department, sometimes we're conflicting with the utility company. And, and there have been numerous residents that have been upset because they've got a western-facing apartment window. The, the landlord sends the landscaping crew out there. They mow all those bushes down below the window line, and now all of a sudden the bedroom to their apartment's 110 degrees. It can be a real challenge. So then we start looking at things like mini blinds and tinting the glass and other things.
0: So phase two, because of all the work and the possible expense, you don't get quite the completion rate as you do with phase one
1: yeah I would say it really depends on the property itself um, if If I were to talk about a Class A property, which are your you know really nice super luxury properties, fireplace, you know they've got their own washing machine, dryer, dishwasher, all of that, the class A properties uh, typically not a problem. Uh, there are some that are Class A properties that really skimped on lighting when they were built. So that might be a little bit of a challenge, especially the newer properties. The landscaping hasn't had a chance to mature and overgrow. But in your, let's get into the Class C property or a Class D property. A property that's much older. Maybe it's distressed. They're having trouble, uh, getting full occupancy. Cash flow is more of an issue. These are the kind of things that can really cause more heartburn, I guess, with phase two.
0: So we trained everyone in phase one. That's the goal. Phase two, we try to get the physical aspects of the property up to speed. But we haven't told the tenants about anything yet. So what did you come up with to include them in this process?
1: Yeah, as i mentioned earlier, originally the second phase of the program was a resident safety social event. And in my ignorance, I called it a crime watch meeting until one of the property managers suggested that they would like it a lot more if I called it a tenant safety social rather than a crime watch meeting. And I thought that was a brilliant idea. And I, I told her from this day forward, I will call them safety socials. The idea is if you've got food and you have some fun, and you make an event free, residents are more likely to show up. So I I would tell property managers, plan an event where there's food, it's fun, and it's free, and I'll come out and educate your residents. We talk about things such as rolling up your windows and locking your doors, taking valuables out of plain sight in your car, layered protection on your vehicle to help prevent auto theft, Just all kinds of crime prevention tips. I think beyond the common sense of crime prevention, we also had to teach them that it is not the apartment manager's responsibility to watch your car. You can't leave your purse in the car and then blame the property manager if your purse gets stolen overnight. You have a responsibility too. And this goes back to what I was talking about in the very beginning, shared responsibility crime is not a police problem and i would have to tell the residents crime is not a property management problem we have to all take a share of the responsibility so educating them about crime prevention was one big component of the safety social the other component was introducing the crime free lease addendum for those that had moved in prior to the property joining the crime free program i would explain to them that they were they were free to fulfill their lease But once their lease came up for renewal, they would be required to pass a criminal background check and they would be required to sign a new lease, including the crime-free lease addendum. But until that time, they were perfectly free to stay there. In some cases, people voluntarily moved out early because they knew they needed to find another place quickly and uh, the managers let them go with a mutual agreement. In some cases, people would stay until their lease was over and then they just didn't renew.
0: There's a new sheriff in town, so we're moving.
1: Absolutely, and, and that is one of the most important points that we made to the property managers. You have more power on this property than the police. You are the sheriff of this property. The, the police cannot enforce their lease provisions, such as drinking in the pool area or out after curfew. These are lease items that a property manager has to enforce there's nothing that the police can do. This, it, I equate this to writing a, a ticket for running a stop sign on private property, like at your local mall. It, it, it's private property. The police aren't going to be enforcing private property rules.
0: Now, one observation that I made, it's kind of a side benefit of this social phase, it, it builds a sense of community. Uh, The residents show up in a meeting and they may meet their neighbors for the first time. They may get introduced. They'll recognize their face. They'll get to meet their children. And guess what? If they become friends, they start caring about each other. They'll watch out for each other. They start looking out, you know, when they come and go, where their vehicles are parked. uh, They'll start exchanging favors. And all of a sudden now you have people that will start protecting that space as if it was their own
1: outstanding point. In fact, one of the things I, I used to talk about a lot in the very, very beginning when people had their first safety social event, and of course, annual safety social events follow after that, but the very first safety social event, I would explain to them, you know, when you when you look over the wall at all the neighborhoods out there, all the single-family home neighborhoods, this is a little bit different in here. This is a very transient Type of living condition, these are strangerhoods. People don't know their neighbors because there's so many people coming and going, moving out every month, that they're really strangerhoods. Whereas you might see in the single family homes people living seven years, ten years, thirty years in the same home. In the apartment community, you've got people moving out every month with the average tenant living in that apartment about one year before they themselves move. So it's a strangerhood. And and the idea of getting them to know their neighbors and realize, hey, you know what? He's not such a bad guy after all. Uh, and they start to look out for each other and care about each other like you said. It promotes a sense of community. And one of the things that I used to always tell the apartment managers I love to see them do is at the very entrance to the rental property put up a sign that says, welcome home. You know, promote the idea that this is their home. It's not just an apartment. Uh, In a single-family home, you typically have a large financial investment, you know, big down payment. You've got a long-term mortgage, and in the apartment communities, you don't have that. Many apartment communities have a zero move-in special or a $99 move-in special, and the long-term to them is a nine-month lease or a one-year lease, and we really want to get them thinking, this is my home. This is where I go at the end of the day. This is where I am with my family. And I, I care about this place. And I'm going to invest by getting involved. When I go out at night, I'm going to walk the dog. I'm going to walk my husband, something. I'm just going to get involved.
0: Sometimes it's the same thing. And hey, now you've developed this program and you've started to have some great success. And you're kind enough to share it with other agencies. How did that start? And that really took off, didn't it? Actually,
1: um, I never intended to uh, start training police officers when I did. The, uh, the city of Mesa was very supportive of the citywide program that I had asked to start. Uh, they didn't give me any extra resources. I mean, I got my regular salary. I had a department car and I had an office. But I had no uh, resources to take this program beyond the citywide level. I did tell the team I was working with that I believed it would be a national model. They called me a dreamer. I said, thank you. I I take that as a compliment. But I had no intentions of really taking the program out until I had a chance to really see how well it would work. But the Arizona Attorney General's office had asked me to speak at a law enforcement coordinating conference in 1993. This would have been the first year that the city council actually sanctioned the program. 1992, it was a pilot project. And the program had only been running for about six months. And then I'm speaking at this conference just to talk about what I'm doing. And the ramifications of that were several law enforcement agencies who attended said, we want to get this program going as quickly as possible. How fast can we do this? And I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You know, I've just barely got the program started myself. Um, I'm going to need a little bit of time. But unfortunately, I bowed to the pressure and took away time from getting my program really off the ground because I started training law enforcement agencies all over the East Valley of the Phoenix metropolitan area. And then later that year in, uh, the late part of 93, the very last part of 93 and the early part of 94, then the metro, then the, the city of Phoenix the Metropolitan Police Department, Phoenix, actually started the program, and I spent quite a bit of time in 1994 helping Phoenix get the program up and running and then it started spreading out to Utah because they heard about it somehow, and Albuquerque heard about it somehow. And I started getting phone calls from California, and I don't even know how the word was getting out. I think some of these law enforcement officers were speaking at other conferences, and it really did kind of pull me away from my work. And the department didn't support me. Uh, I had to have the requesting agencies pay for my expenses, uh, my my flight and my hotel, for me to go there, but the department that I worked for was very generous as far as they said I could still continue to collect my salary as long as the other agencies picked up my expenses. But the genesis of that was really in May of 1993 when I spoke at the Attorney General's conference. And then the fall of 93, I started helping East Valley agencies. And at the very end of 93, in the early part of 94, started working with Phoenix. It was also in 94 that Utah and New Mexico Came online, and then from there it just it just continued to roll. I couldn't stop it. It was like a snowball rolling downhill.
0: Yeah, that's always been a flaw in your personality. You've always been very giving, very helpful, uh, very sharing, bending over backwards to provide all the resources that you spent a lot of blood, sweat, and tears uh, developing. But beyond that, you really uh, jumped on board and you started thinking about maybe we could all get together and start sharing information at a conference. Tell us what happened there.
1: Actually, it was in the late 90s. Um, I was traveling literally um, every month, sometimes a couple times a month. But I remember one week I was on um, the docks, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, on the Pacific Ocean, eating fish and chips with the mayor, a council member, and a police coordinator. Literally one week later, I was in Cape Cod, sitting on the docks with a police chief and a police officer to be a coordinator on the Atlantic Ocean, eating fish and chips. And I was thinking, you know, this is a really great job that I've got here, but this is killing me as far as my personal schedule and time away from my wife and family. And I thought instead of me going out to where everybody else is, it would really make a lot more sense to bring everybody to where I am. Uh, I had recently trained a police officer in the San Diego area. He had uh, come to a training class, and he said that he had experience putting on conferences and that he'd be willing to help me with the first international crime-free conference.
0: That wouldn't happen and, to be uh, Chris Krug, would it?
1: Yeah, El Cajon Police Department. Yeah. And in fact, uh, we did the first two international crime-free conferences in San Diego, After that, uh, other agencies started to put in bids. We went up to Seattle area and then to Savannah, Georgia and different places around the country and started moving it around and every year, without missing a single year. We've had an international conference in another state, or in one case up in Canada, in one of the provinces, British Columbia being the first to initiate the program. They hosted the first international conference outside the country, and uh, the program has spread all across Canada. We've got now from Vancouver Island all the way to Nova Scotia, and quite a few provinces in between.
0: You know, if you remember, that's how you and I hooked up. You invited me to one of your training programs in Mesa. This is before the first conference. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You were training police officers from different parts of the country, and I sat in, and I thought it was uh, just a great uh, vehicle. And how the concept of you training officers over the period of uh, two and a half or three and a half days, I forget, to learn and know all of the things that you took years to develop and take it back and implement it.
1: Yeah, I developed a two and a half day training. The half day training started in the evening hours when they would fly into town or if I would fly into their town, we would go out to a rental property and do a safety social event and a nighttime inspection. That was the half day. The next day, we would start at Dark 30 and go to Phase 1. Let them actually observe the entire Phase 1 training the way I teach it. And, of course, I would tell them, you know, don't imitate me. You know, I'm going to give you the basics, but you be yourself. Teach it the way you think is best for you and the needs of your community. The third day, we did Phase 2, and that is where I would take them out to do the daytime inspection, and we would literally comb through these apartment communities, individual apartments, recreational areas, just the entire rental property. Then we would come back, make presentations as to what we saw, what we would recommend. We'd talk about media relations. We would talk about record keeping, everything that they really needed to know. In two and a half days, they were pretty much ready to get up and run their own program. And, And I would tell them, you know, don't expect your best program the first time, but Uh, You'll do well your first time, and each time it'll get better and better. Uh, It was it it was necessary for me to train them to do that because one, I couldn't handle training all over the country, and number two, uh, it was too much for me to remember all the individual state laws.
0: So these officers, you got to give yourself a little more credit than that. You just didn't give them a lecture and then turn them loose. You handed over your slide deck, your PowerPoint slide. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Handed over a manual. You hand oh, yeah. over checklists. Uh, you walk them through step by step. So when they got back to their agencies, they could pretty much pick up a model that you already had. And they had a template to work from. They didn't have to reinvent the wheel or do anything new. And anytime they got stuck or, or weren't sure, they had a resource. They can call you back. And I know for years you were like the sole source of training and retraining and support for these agencies until the Crime-Free Association really got rolling.
1: Yeah, that's very true. For about six years, uh, it was just me. And, uh, I mean, my phone was going constantly from places all over. Uh, You know, hey, I've got a question about this or that, and I was doing all of it myself. And that was when um, I decided to start a core of national trainers and the International Crime-Free Conference to try and bring all these people together and divide and conquer and conquer. Thank you for mentioning, you know, the, the resources that I gave them. That was my intention, and I did tell them, I'm giving you everything I've got so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Certainly, if it needs tweaking for your agency's needs or, you know, your own comfort, there are some things you can't change. But really much 99% of it, you can, you can tweak it to make it work for you. But they, they walked out, they had everything they needed, all the videos they needed, the PowerPoint they needed, all the forms, checklists, everything they needed. So it really made it quite easy for them. I was frustrated in law enforcement with how many times I went to a class. I'd leave the class and say, wow, that was really interesting, but where do I start?
0: And, and they took with them all your bad jokes and things. Yeah. Like that
1: too. <laughs> yeah. But I gotta yeah, tell you that's
0: that's one of the reasons why this program has endured and has developed so rapidly, uh, because you gave them so many tools and so much help along the way to get them started and be comfortable to the point where they can make it their own to fit the needs of their own community. Uh, so the conference, tell us a little bit more about the uh, the Crime-Free Conference before we wrapped up, how that's evolved into now the uh, primary source of additional training and continuing education.
1: I still continue to do some traveling, though not nearly as much as I used to. Uh, there are other national trainers that still do some training as well. But for the most part, our big training event, and and we try to steer people towards the big training event rather than custom training just for their agency, uh, is going to be held in a different state, different types of cities. Um, They can be small cities, they can be large metropolitan cities. Uh, A couple years ago, we were in Wichita Falls, a real small community in Texas. Um, then, shortly after that we 're in Kansas City, Missouri, and you know it just it varies from time to time. You never know where we 're going to be, but we we really try to get people to look forward to the annual conference. The first annual conference was really different for me. It was surreal because I knew virtually everybody that was there, but nobody knew anybody else. And watching over the years, this is now our 20, I think we're coming up on 25 years here pretty quick, the anniversary for the program, 20 years for the association. It was really cool watching people develop friendships and people literally became like family. And we've got people who have even retired from law enforcement that still come to these conferences year after year after year because we truly have become a family. At this annual conference is when we, we have our board meetings, we discuss strategies, uh, get feedback from the, uh, members as to, you know, what they need help with and we introduce new crime free programs. As you had mentioned in the very beginning, uh, there have been quite a few programs that have spawned off of this original program, and this is their opportunity to come to training and get the knowledge they need to adopt other crime free programs in their community.
0: Just to kind of wrap up here, if somebody wants to learn more about the crime free programs or the Crime Free Association, how they get involved, or just information about apartment security or crime prevention in rental housing, What resources could you recommend to help further that interest?
1: There's a couple of great resources on the Internet, one of them, of course, being crimedoctor.com. Your website has some great resources. Um, Also, local apartment associations have some resources. The International Crime-Free Association uh, website, you can just Google search International Crime-Free Association, find our website. There are some resources on there as well. Uh, YouTube has some great videos that have been posted by crime-free coordinators and police officers around the country uh, dealing with these issues, uh, many videos regarding the success of the crime-free programs showing the before and after um, videos and stories about the properties. Uh, there, there's just tons of information on the Internet. Plus, a person can contact their local law enforcement agency and ask if they're involved in the crime-free program. If not, the next best thing is probably Google search the crime-free multi-housing program and then type in the name of their state. Uh, They may find other agencies within their state that are doing the program, and they can check with them and hopefully even get that agency to connect with their agency where they live and start a crime-free program there.
0: And we know know for a fact that even if the program is not available in your city, an adjacent city... May allow you to attend their training.
1: I've never seen a city that would not allow a property manager from an adjacent city to attend. I would say that's a very safe assumption that if your city's not offering the program, you can go to a nearby city and they'll be welcoming.
0: Great. Well, Tim, I, I think we'll, we'll finish here on the, uh, the high note. This is one outstanding program. I've been, Thank you. been a fan of it uh, since the beginning. In fact I joined this association I think I'm charter member number 6.
1: You're not only a charter member you are our designated crime expert.
0: Well I got to tell you I donate a lot of time uh, in my in my trade and this has been my international community service from the onset because it is so valuable in my mind it's doing so much good it's endured for all these years, and it's just getting better and better and wider spread every year. So thank you very much, Tim, for your hard work in developing, and thank you for sharing all of your hard work in developing this program uh, with the world. We'll see you out there fighting crime.
1: Yeah, and thank you, too, for all that you've done. Uh, It's just, it it goes without saying, we could not have done many of the things that we've done without your help, and certainly other crime-free coordinators in other states, the contributions they've made as well. It has truly been a team effort.
0: Thank you, Tim. Let's talk again soon.
1: Sounds good. Thank you very much, Chris. This is the Crime School Radio Show with your host, Chris McGowey we invite you to comment on today's topic and join the Crime School community. For more information and show notes from this episode, please visit crimeschool.com.